the reality is, yes, you want kids to have fun when they learn, but I also believe mm. that diamonds are created under pressure. So you need to offer a challenging environment. If you're not being pushed a little, you're going to have a very hard time in real life. And second of all, you're missing on the chance to stretch yourself and to learn. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Henry, really excited to have you on the show. It's been such a great time getting to know you, and I thought this would be a really fun journey to share. So Henry, could you please introduce yourself? Sure, and thanks a lot, Jeremy, and happy new year. Pleasure being here. I'm really excited to, you know, to chat for the next hour or so. So hi, I'm Henry. I'm the CEO and founder of Edge Tutor, and I previously set up another ed tech company called Education eight years ago in the Philippines. Great. Could you share a little bit about what you were like as a kid? Ooh, what would my parents say? So I was actually very introverted as a kid to the point where at one point my parents were moving around a lot. And so they left me with my grandmother and my uncle for a couple of months whilst they were moving to a new country. And I was apparently so quiet that my grandmother was convinced that I was deaf mute. And then oh, my, no. my uncle decided to make a lot of, made a loud noise behind my head and I turned around and he was like, oh, see, the child can hear. But I was extremely quiet and introverted as a child. And I only became a bit more extroverted with time because we kept moving countries every two, three years because of my dad's job. And so, you know, when you're the new kid in school, after a while, you quickly learn that you either open your mouth and start making friends quickly, or by the time you wrap up your two years in a city, you won't have really met anyone. So I used to be very introverted would be the usual fact about my younger self. What was it like for you as a kid to be changing school so often and traveling to new geographies as a kid? How did it feel back then? I think it's quite exciting because you get to constantly question things and slightly reinvent yourself and you never feel tight because the people who know are in the previous school. So you have a little bit of a chance to keep exploring. And I think that helps a lot with personality development because part of being young and being in school is about just trying a lot of different things and figuring out what fits and what drives you. Amazing. And so you went off to do well in school, actually, right? So you went to LSE, London School of Economics, you went to Harvard. So what do you think explained that trajectory from your perspective? So I actually spent my first year in undergrad just being very upset and frustrated that I didn't get to Cambridge. <laughs> so I can laugh about it now, but I, I was not very amused at the time. Honestly, the reality is just the school you go to makes a massive difference. And I like to remind everyone who's gone to a good school that very often it's if you go to a good college it's very often because your parents made certain sacrifices or were lucky to be able to put you in a very good private school you will have some who come from public schools and who do extremely well but i went to private schools and so as a result i went to an international school we had excellent teachers and they had a very good average IB, etc. So as much as I'd want to take credit, I think the college you get into is usually more of an indicator of 
the resources your parents were able to afford to you. I would say that's a big driver. So that I was nerdy and I went to a very good private school. And so that's why I got into NSC, not because I'm particularly smart. That's my view on college. And then my view on business school is actually, so business school is not very big. It's not as big in Europe. It's a much bigger thing in the US. I was always amused at just how much people in the US prepare for business school. Like they'll think about it in college. And when I was in college, I don't think I even knew properly what an MBA was. And I certainly wasn't thinking of one. I think the reason I was able to get into a, a good MBA program is because by luck, I worked for American companies and American companies value MBAs a lot more and prepare you a lot more for it. So by the Ooh. time I was in private equity, I had bosses telling me you should consider applying to business school. 90% of Bain Caps managing directors went to Harvard Business School. So they know what it takes for you to get in in terms of what to how to prepare for the application for the essays. Many of them tend to be big doors to the school. So again, there's a massive luck element involved. Bain Cap has a very high passing rate into Harvard Business School. Big Bain Cap alum have a very high passing rate into Harvard Business School. So I think it's, again, I basically, I thank luck for those two uh, university degrees. I understand that, especially the side on the kind of like employer and feeder schools in that sense, because I went to being management consulting and I remember coming in as an intern and I saw somebody coming back from business school, Harvard, from the MBA into the Bain Southeast Asia office. And I was like, oh, if she can do it, then I could do it. And I thought that was a yeah. really fascinating moment that I've remembered ever since, especially in the education tech side. And I know that you have some thoughts about that, especially the importance of, like, say, luck in terms of environment, in terms of structure for kids. Could you share me some of your thoughts around why it takes a good education, also in terms of, like, a good structure? Sure. I've been lucky that I've gotten to sample different education systems because we moved around a lot. So I went through the French education system, which at least, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s was very heavy academically and quite rigid in some ways, but also so very structured and I think what I picked up from that was if you have a very rigorous system where academic performance is expected from all students, yes, there's ranking, so it's good if you're top of the class or not, but the French system pushes you at an earlier age more than other systems. And there's debates around whether that's healthy or not, but it does create a lot more academic rigor and it does create an expectation that school is hard work. And I remember mm. moving to international school when I was 14 <laughs> and the dean welcomed all the parents and the students saying, we want your children to be happy happy and to have fun. And my dad, who's French, turning to my mother, who's Filipina, saying, I'm not paying for the kids to have fun. I'm paying for the kids to learn. I'm paying for them to get into a good college. What is this nonsense? <laughs> and I think I, I still remember that moment. And it's true. And I think you need to have that balance, right? The reality is, yes, of course, you want kids to have fun when they learn. Of course, you want them to have a space and time to develop. But I'm on the stricter end of the spectrum. I also believe mm. that diamonds are created under pressure. So you need to offer a challenging environment. And it's not just a case of everybody at their own pace. If you're not being pushed a little or sometimes a lot, first of all, you're going to have a very hard time in real life. And second of all, you're missing on the chance to stretch yourself and to learn. So I think structure is very important. I naturally say this to someone who doesn't have kids yet. So maybe ask me again in five or 10 years. And I do think it's important to, to offer stretch assignments, stretch opportunities. You don't want to push mm. kids until they're unhappy or they're burning out, but there always has to be room for going the extra mile, learning something new, learning it faster. Not necessarily in every single subject. You have to give learners the opportunity to stretch. That for me is very important. So let's talk about what it means to stretch you know, a child in terms of that. Is it like understanding where they are, providing a stretch assignment? Can you define stretch from your perspective? Yes. So there's two ways of looking at stretch, right? I think 
pre-ed tech way was quite rigid because fundamentally one teacher had one set of materials for if you're in a resource constrained school, it was one teacher for 40, 45, 50 kids. A better resource school might be at 25 or 20 and an elite school might be at 15. But fundamentally, you are still teaching with the same material. I think in a post-COVID world, in a ed tech and a tech heavy world, being stretched means getting pushed beyond your existing capacity, which for a group of 30 students will mean 30 different levels. And so everyone's stretch will look a bit or sometimes quite a lot different. What's important is that you keep stretching. And so even if you are behind, and I can share some experience we have doing edge tutor, we tutor some kids who are behind. We tutor some kids who are ahead of their year and you're teaching a grade five student, grade seven math, they're being stretched, they're liking it. But we've also taught students who are in grade five, but their math is the math of a grade four or grade three student. And you owe it to that student as well to stretch them because they have a lot of catching up to you. You don't have years to get them up to par. And so my view on stretch is essentially constantly pushing you a little bit above and beyond what you're currently comfortable with. And the more you can personalize what that baseline is, the more relevant the stretch becomes. Because otherwise, you're either not stretching at all or you don't want to be teaching grade seven math to someone who's already two years behind in grade five. That's just going to traumatize the kid. That's not actually mm. going to help them learn. Yeah. On that note, I'm so curious because you started using the phrases like grade five, grade three, grade seven, which implies some kind of standard in terms of like where we expect a child to get to. And that's yeah. become relatively controversial in the US. I, mean, I think there's been the unwinding or standardized testing like the SATs. So I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about that. So... Pardon the pun, but I'm probably a little bit on the old school side where I do think there is value in standardized testing because there's two ways you can look at standardized testing, right? You either think of it as just a way to make the system more efficient. It's a lot easier to administer, right? You know, everyone has, if a B in math or an A in English at A levels means the same for any student, it allows you as a country, or as a society to manage your educational resources, etc. So that's kind of the efficiency argument. I think of it more as the benchmark or the yardstick argument. I don't have particularly strong views in terms of what a 17-year-old should know in terms of biology. I think biology is interesting, but you can have an argument for people needing to know way more or way less than they currently are expected to. But I very firmly believe in where you need people to be in terms of literacy and numeracy and idea actually on 21st century skills. So I actually care a lot more about the financial literacy and the sexual education of minors than I do about their basic understanding of DNA or like the chemistry, the periodic table of elements. Like literacy and numeracy are the founding blocks. And there you need to have standards because you need to know when students are falling behind and students are falling behind all over the world. So I'm a big believer in keeping that standardized. And for other topics, I think there's a lot of value in making sure that there's standardize life skills expectation for students by a certain age. It's super fascinating because I would say that means that you actually are in favor of standardized testing, but you also think that it should be expanded to more domains of knowledge that are more relevant for the 21st century. And I think that's super fair, right? I mean, you know, I always remember that I grew up knowing a lot of biology and math and so, so forth, you know, a good school. But then I grew up and I didn't really understand anything about nutrition, personal health, Correct. or personal yeah. finance. And I'm just like... Paying taxes. Paying, exactly. Yeah. You know, I would go out and be like, oh, you know, an Oreo has the same amount of calories as, you know, a bag of carrots so you might as well eat Oreo and it's just like whoop that's not how you should you know be thinking about it exactly and at the risk of contradicting myself because I know that they in some respects they've moved away from standardized testing but there's been some interesting experiments or like wide scale experiments in Finland around teaching topics rather than subjects so as opposed as teaching just history or just geography or just biology can you teach broader subjects can you teach around World War II not just the historical facts but can you talk about the social changes 
leaders? Can you talk about the political implications? Can you talk about the rapid urbanization post the two world wars, et cetera, et cetera? There's so much more integrated approaches to topics. And I think that would be quite relevant. So that, that's, I think where I do think we need less standardized testing is around academic subjects that are not mm. like skills. So I, I don't think we need standardized testing on geography. It's, I mean, it's, that's my perspective. That's really fascinating. So I think what I'm hearing is, you know, there's the dimension of the domain of knowledge to be learned. Then there's the pedagogy of how it's taught. And then the question is, what kind of standard we expect kids to get to? And the last thing is like how we apply that, those results from those tests in different domains. Really yes. fascinating and, and, conversation yeah. here. And I would add one more point, which is around, and this is super relevant with AI, right? So, which is already pre-AI, it's like some of the debates that are happening around AI, talk about it as if these were not issues pre-AI, right? So this whole idea of like, oh, you can... You know, you can use chat GPT for your college homework. And I'm, yes, but you can also have, and you also have people using Wikipedia into their PhD. So the idea that there's existing high quality pre-written content out there that you can use has already been changing the way people study and the way people get assessed. And so I think one trend I'm very supportive of is like open book examination, which is you have access to the whole body of knowledge that's out there, but how are you know, able to process that and like how are you able to make an argument? AI complicates things because it takes it to the next level where you can actually make cohesive arguments using AI, at which point if you're just checking what AI has done, are you actually learning anything? And the answer is probably not reading or at least very little. So I think that's one of the challenges, but it's the body of knowledge that exists that you have at your fingertips has been a boon slash issue for the last 15 plus years. And it's something we've been talking about in the education space for the whole time. And that's interesting because you spent many years in the education space, you know, ever since the time at Bain Capital and Harvard MBA, you've been pretty much not only been focused on education, but also education in emerging markets as well. So. Can you share a little bit more about why you chose to do that? Sure. So from a geographical perspective, I, I grew up mostly in Europe. I studied there, I worked there, so I did a bit of banking in London and then some private equity. I was always interested in moving to Southeast Asia post-MBA. I'm a Filipino passport holder. I've spent years of my life in Southeast Asia being with relatives in Singapore and the Philippines, but I had never actually like studied or worked there. I was very industry agnostic. So I actually spent my whole summer MBA, like MBA summer between first and second year. I set up an anti-corruption so not the most business thing to do, but it's something I felt quite strongly about. And whilst I was working on this anti-corruption tech platform, I looked at other industries like healthcare, education, agriculture, like real estate, and got interested in education because of the high impact it had, but also because it was a massive business opportunity. It felt like it was a, a convergence of a desire to do good but also a desire to build a sustainable business. And that's kind of my personal journey into the Philippines, really. I'm just lucky that it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But the initial appeal was a desire to go home and build something. What have you learned over the years? Because everybody comes in into education tech with fresh pair of eyes, yeah. idealism, mission. Oh and then obviously gosh. you and I have gone through that process. We're like, okay, these are some of the awkward realities of what it is, right? Could you share a little bit more about what that means from the education tech perspective? How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> So it's, I think the most humbling thing about working in education and everyone told me before I entered the space and I think being young and naive, obviously my view was like, oh, but this time it's different because of tech and et cetera, et cetera. Education is a very traditional industry. And so it's just a very slow moving industry. I think people tend to overestimate how much it changed with digitization, even with COVID, and they are underestimating how much is left to change. So it means that the industry is both less advanced than people realize 
but a lot more exciting than people realize. It has very long sales cycles. It's multi-stakeholder where there's a lot of risk aversion and there's a lot of belief that it's someone else's problem, which is insane because if you think about it, if a child is not getting the right education, it doesn't really matter who you blame, the window passes once that child mm. turns 18. And I know people believe in lifelong learning and that's wonderful, but you can't fight basic biology. Your brain is most receptive to absorbing educational knowledge as a young person, as a teenager. That is a very good time to be absorbing all sorts of knowledge. If you don't impart the right skills at that age group, it is difficult to course correct. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. And I've worked on multiple projects that try to do upskilling or lifelong learning. I've done some work with institutions that essentially enable adults to finish high school degrees. It is obviously possible. It is never too late. But your opportunity costs your just the, the best ROI you'll ever have is from getting K-12 education right. And one of the things that people mis misunderstand about a lot of the most successful Asian economies like South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong and Taiwan, the early tigers in the 90s, they got two things really, aside from good institutions, blah, blah, blah. They had socialized housing and very good public K-12 education. Now you know them as having very good universities, but the thing you have to get correct is very good K-12 because yeah. someone who picks up the right skills in K-12 is highly employable. And I'm sure you've seen it. You yourself, I'm sure you would have been perfectly employable at 16 or 17. It's great that you ended up studying further, et cetera, but the person you were at 16 or 17 because you had a good K-12 education, you were probably capable of 80% of what 22 or 28-year-old Jeremy was capable doing. So right. uh, getting K-12 right is the single most important thing that an education system can do. I think I've veered off your initial question. But that's uh, something I feel strongly about. No, I think this is a fair one, which is I think what you've reminded me is that the big learning about education tech is that it's a multi-stakeholder environment and the biggest stakeholder is the government, right? There's a country and national level dynamic around employment, around life skills that just starts with K-12, right? And I think there's a lot of different aspects about it that are difficult to disentangle. But I'll share, so that's the more kind of pessimistic, negative view that mm. things are very slow. I think the other side of the coin, though, is that educate. and I've worked, I haven't worked in that many industries, but when I was in private equity and banking, I was uh, sector agnostic. So I worked a bit in healthcare and food distribution and industrials, et cetera. One of the things that you have in education, which I believe you also have in healthcare, is a unusually high proportion of idealistic stakeholders. The stakes are so high. I think I've now met with hundreds, if not thousands of teachers and educators and university administrators. It's an industry where a lot of people just feel very strongly and very passionate that feeds into a slow decision-making process. But it also means that when you have good programs that do get rolled out, you will actually have a very motivated set of stakeholders who can push for it. And so it's an industry that is frustrating, but that I also find full of hope because many people are in this industry in the long run, for the long run. And so there's a level of passion that you don't necessarily see in other industries. Yeah, I appreciate that, especially about the education side. I think the flip side of that is that they call it a passion subsidy, which is that there's a lot of talent yeah. coming into the education space or spaces that have a lot of impact, but you know, it ends up, you say, depressing wages and economics as possible because of competition in that space. Nothing good, nothing bad. I think it just is what it is. But I'm so curious about you personally. Like, how have you changed? Because you're one of the few people who have not only been building an education tech, I'll build this across two different companies and been building this in emerging markets across multiple geographies. So how do you think you have changed as perhaps as an education tech 
leader and founder. Well, so I definitely have a lot more white hair than 10 years ago. It's very humbling in a very good way. And I cannot speak for other industries. Maybe someone feels the same if they work in e-commerce or in fintech. But the longer I stay in ed tech, the more I understand that I know very little. And so I think if you weren't humble before, you're definitely humble after 10 years in this space. Because one is you're constantly surrounded by people who just have vastly superior knowledge to you, but knowledge that's graspable. So when I work with software engineers, I'm not a coder myself, so I can understand what they're doing is complex, but I don't really grasp what they're doing, if that makes sense. Well, I can work with them, but I can't quite relate to what they're working on. When I talk to educators who've been in the space for 20, 30 years, like some of my colleagues at Studer, when they share very complex issues that they're grappling with, it's easier for me to get on board with understanding what the challenges are. And so instead of just thinking, oh, this person is the expert, I'm going to leave them do it. What I like is that you actually can engage. And so you can really keep stretching yourself. And so it goes back to this concept of stretching. And so I think working in ed tech makes you more humble and it stretches you quite a lot intellectually. The third thing that actually I completely underestimated going in is every MBA, I think with the right process and the right strategy, there's nothing you can't do. And you realize that, no, it's down to people. Can you communicate the changes you want to push through in a way that you can get people on board? If you can, great. And if you cannot, doesn't really matter how good your innovation is or how much cost savings or learning improvements you can deliver. You will get zero take up from teachers, from school admins, from parents, from learners. And so I think if I were to change one thing, it's I would have probably studied psychology instead of economics for my because um, it's it's how you change consumer behavior. Right. You mentioned about lifelong learning, right? What are you looking to learn these days? What are you reading? Why are you listening to? So I'm doing a couple of things. I'm actually learning Spanish for, it's a language that I used to somewhat speak decently 20 years ago, back in high school. And it's a language I, I'm happy to brush up on. And, it's, and it just so happens that it's also the language spoken to by many of the new clients of the company. So we're now operating mm. in Central America, South America, and in Spain, amongst other markets. And so I think speaking Spanish will come in handy. And I also just have a soft spot for, for Latin culture, whether it's music or even books, TV shows and whatnot. So I'm learning that. The second thing is I'm learning a lot with my colleagues around, around instruction. The, the second company I built is a lot more academic than the first, I would say. And so that's what happens when you're in a room surrounded by people who have masters or PhDs in, in education. You, you learn a lot around like pedagogy and teaching methodologies, which is a bit of a new world for me that I'm really enjoying. And the third thing I am trying to learn a bit more is Pilates. Wow. You get older and you got to get, you got to take care of your back. I laugh because I think you already know quite a few languages already. What are all the languages you know? So I'm actually, I'm not very talented. So my mother speaks seven languages. She is extremely talented at languages and picks them up in no time. I generally really only speak French and English, I would say. Yeah. I speak a little bit of Tagalog. I speak a little bit of Spanish. I had some fairly unsuccessful attempts to learn Mountain Mandarin and German. But so I really consider myself bilingual with some Filipino and, and Spanish in there. Well, Mandarin is the hardest by far. I mean, it's all the way. I, tr I tried three times. I stretched three yeah. times and three times the elastic broke. It just wasn't meant to be. Like you said, I think it's easier for kids to learn when they're young and it's harder for people to learn languages when they're older, which is an interesting biological dynamic to empathize with, right? But, but, you know, there's some great studies and I think it's, it helps understand a lot more the political perspectives that we have as we get older, which is for lack of a better term, your brain ossifies and mm. your 
patterns become more and more established. It's evolutionary and it allows you to make faster decisions because you see, you get pattern recognition. But that is why typically as people get older, they get more conservative. Your brain is biologically less open to change and more likely want to take shortcuts. And that's why there's this whole field around psychedelics that essentially break those pathways and give your brain the agility, quote unquote, you know, of someone 10, 20, 30 years younger. I think that's yeah. a different topic, not necessarily for this podcast, but the brain does yeah. age yeah. and the way we think gets ossified. And so that that's why I'm such a big believer in getting K-12 right. It's interesting because in terms of the aging of the brain, I think we often talk about education from a very like, you know, like say pedagogy, right? This is what I want to teach and this is how I want to do it. And this is our concept I want to have. But I love what you said, which is I think that appreciation for the biological underpinnings of how a child grows and learns, right? And our fundamental human psychology. Which, the, and by the way, it doesn't mean just because it's harder to learn as you age doesn't mean you shouldn't. In fact, oh. one of the best ways of reducing the risk of getting Alzheimer's is to right. speak multiple languages. Doing, doing academic or mental gymnastics actually helps you age and actually preserves your, you know, your brain health. So it's, it's harder, but you should still do it. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Yes, I would say it's probably been around when, when COVID hit and we almost ran out of cash, I think. And it's a, it's a storm, frankly, that many other startups went through. And I think here, what it taught me is it's not about you being brave as an individual. It's about whether or not you choose to be brave as an organization. Because you can be as brave as you want. If you're trying to set course for a strategy that nobody else is game to be part of, like you're not going to get very far. And so I would say that during COVID, when we, we had only a couple of months of runway, the leadership team chose to be brave. And being brave was everything from like deferred salary to taking very difficult decisions around restructuring the business to working evenings and weekends and whatnot. So there was a lot of pain. It was a lot of very difficult conversations and very difficult choices. I think obviously it paid off that the business survived that cash crunch and is, is, is still here today. But for me, that, that was probably the bravest I've quote unquote felt. And it's also when I realized that it's not about being brave by yourself. You have to be part of a brave team. That's how you get through difficult times. What do you think you learned from that experience? Manager costs. No. So I think it's, it's really around scenario planning and, you know, and it's something that I've taken with me that we've kept at education in the first company and that we're doing a lot in the second company. So it's about having an unemotional planning of, let's say your largest two customers go bankrupt or stop paying you or stop working with you. How does the business survive? Assume that half of your leadership team is on their way to an offsite and then there's like an accident. Like how do you recover from that? So it's scenario planning and not just having intellectual conversations about it, but actually saying, hey, let's actually you know, run the numbers, let's run it. And so we actually do quite a bit around making sure that when our team leaders are on holidays, we ask them to actually as much as possible just not touch their phone because that is the best testing ground for key leaders just not being available and how does the business function without them. And then on the client side, you can do it with running, you know, just running your PNL, assuming that specific clients are taken out. That for me was the key lesson. It's you have to, you hope for the best, but you plan for the worst. Yeah. When you think about that, obviously it's a common lesson that founders actually go through that experience over and over again. And you and I have discussed that before as well. I'm kind of curious, you know, for founders who are kind of going through this learning experience, it feels like many folks just end up learning through their own experience. They have to make that mistake before they actually learn it. Right? Before you internalize it. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you can still learn from others. So actually I think what really saved us during COVID yeah. was we had a, we had a CFO back in 2019 
who had a much stronger grasp of, of financial risk. And, you know, and that tends to happen when you have a CFO who had to flee the SSR as it was collapsing. So you right. have a very different view of risk, right? There's, it's not, oh, my favorite TV show is canceled. It's, oh, the country I grew up in is collapsing. And so right. that just gives you a very different, you're much more aware of what risk looks like. And I remember that in 2019, she was our CFO and we peaked at something like 105 employees. And she looked around and she was like, we could run this business with half as many people. Just because we have the cash in the bank doesn't mean that we should be spending it. And so we actually started gently restructuring in July 2019. And so by the time COVID hit, yes, it was difficult, but the team had already shrunk from 105 to, I think, six or yeah, 60 ish employees. And so bringing right. it down to 40 was difficult. But if we right. had started like 120, it would have probably been impossible and it would have probably folded. And so if you don't yet have that experience, surround yourself with people who do whether in your leadership team, whether on your board, and they will push you to plan for it. And so when you meet your learning moment, it can be less painful than otherwise. On that note, thank you so much for sharing, Henry, about your personal experiences. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your early childhood and your own early learning experiences. I thought it was incredible to hear about your experience coming up from parents who were traveling around the world and what it was like to be in different schools, learning from different education systems, learning different languages. And it was a nice window into who you were as a kid. Secondly, thanks for sharing about your points of view on the education system, about how you think the education system needs to change in terms of the technology trends, but also how it could better serve kids in terms of the domains of knowledge. And I thought there was a fun discussion about the standardized testing as well as one aspect of you know, the current debate uh, on education. Lastly, thanks for sharing about being a founder and what it's like to be an education tech founder. It was interesting to hear about, you know, obviously how much idealism there is in the sector in terms of education tech, but also about your personal idealism when you came in and what you've learned along the way to better operate as a founder and leading in so many different countries the education for so many kids. On that note, thank you so much, Henry, for sharing experience and thank you for taking your time. Thanks so much, Jeremy. And I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.